You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 20, if you're not already there. And before we begin, let's pray together. Our gracious Father, we come to you to ask your blessing upon our time of study and thinking about your word. Pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to the truth and use your word to incline our hearts to you, to open our eyes and to open our hearts. And we pray that you would be glorified through our study in a time of meditation and reflection upon the things in your word. Sanctify us, your people, by your truth, we pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. John chapter 20, we're looking today at verse 30 and 31. Last week we finished looking at the sixth of the ten recorded resurrection appearances of Jesus. And we didn't quite finish chapter 20 last week because there are two these two verses at the end of chapter 20, which are something of a parenthetical reference. It's kind of John's uh, commentator, uh, commentary or a, a, a statement as to the purpose of why he is writing the book. This is John's purpose statement. And it's kind of odd that it comes at the towards the end of his book. Uh, contrast that with how Luke introduces his gospel. Luke tells us right at the beginning of his gospel why he wrote it. He says, these things I've written to you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may understand and know in a consecutive order all of the things that have happened and been accomplished among us. So Luke tells us right at the beginning of his gospel why it is that he writes the book. And then you can read all of Luke's gospel and, and you get a sense as to that he has indeed laid these things out in a consecutive order so that we might know about these things. That's the purpose of the Gospel of Luke. But you have to read all the way through the Gospel of John, get almost to the very end of the Gospel of John before you, before John even tells us why he wrote the book. And that's always been intriguing to me that we would get 95% of the way through this Gospel before we realize why we've been reading this Gospel. I had a Bible professor who saw a life lesson in the fact that John waits until the end to tell us about this. Um, his name was Mr. Peeler. And Mr. Peeler was a man who's, who's I had heard of him. I'd heard of the legend of Mr. Peeler. When I showed up at Bible college, he was 80 years old. He had been teaching at that Bible college for 60 years. He was there as a teacher when the college was founded. And he was one of the most godly men, the most wise men, who knew his Bible better than anybody I had ever met in my life. And I wanted to get to know Mr. Peeler outside of the classroom. So I asked him if I could come over and sit down some evening and, and visit with him. Really, what I was longing for was to be discipled. And so he agreed to this. And so... Uh, I would show up at his house, and this was, see, what I got out of it was the benefit of sitting and talking about life and theology and ministry with a godly man. And I think the only thing that Mr. Peeler got out of it was a growth in forbearance and long-suffering and patience. So we both at least got something out of this. I think he probably saw it as an occupational hazard of being a Bible college professor, that you were going to have kids showing up and asking you these things. So I would go over to Mr. Peeler's house, and it's odd because even as I'm telling you this story, I can smell his house. Isn't it weird how our minds work? We think we, we think of a memory or something, you go through it and you can actually smell the scents there. And you might be wondering, what does the house of a godly man smell like? It smells like old furniture and old books. So if you want to know what Mr. Peeler's house smells like, you'd get an old book, the oldest one you can find, and sit down in an old piece of furniture in an antique store and smell all of that together. That was Mr. Peeler's house. So I would go over to Mr. Peeler's house uh, about once a month, every five weeks, something like that. And I would always bring over with me a jar of homemade dill pickles or homemade sauerkraut 
or homemade, we, we called them dilly beans, but they were pickled beans uh, in dill. And they were delicious, and Mr. Peeler loved them. And we'd sit at his kitchen table, and we would eat dilly beans or dill pickles or sauerkraut, and we would talk about life and ministry and theology. And I loved these times with him. And I asked him one night at one of our get-togethers, I said, Mr. Peeler, you're 80 years old. You've been teaching the Bible for 60 years. You have read the Bible probably at least that many times, 60 through. You've memorized vast paths of Scripture. And you have learned, I'm assuming, all that there is to learn. Does there ever come a point in your Christian life now at 80 years old? Does there ever come a point where you lose the wonder of it? You stop discovering. You stop learning. You stop delighting in just the study itself where you can kind of say, I've got this mastered and I can put this on the shelf and I've got this down now. Does there ever come a point where you do that? Now, I ask that because as a brand new Bible college student, I was a white slate when I went to Bible college. I knew, I knew virtually nothing. And every day, sitting in class, hour after hour, it was like taking it in was like drinking from a fire hose. I just felt overwhelmed with everything that I was learning. Every, every sentence that anybody said was so full of new information and new ideas and truth that I would just hang on it. And I delighted in the study and the learning of it and the reading of it. Um, I delighted in that so much that I didn't, never wanted to get to a point in my Christian life where I, I had all of that mastered and there was nothing else to learn. And I was asking him this partly because I... I he taught Matthew class, and in Matthew class, I had got 100% on the final exam. Nobody else in the class got 100% on the final exam, but I did. I got 100%, and I aced the Matthew class, Mr. Peeler's Matthew class. And so I had, there was nothing else I could learn from the book of Matthew, right? I was, I was one book down out of 66, and I was getting a good handle on all of the other books, and so I figured at Bible college, I'll learn probably 90, 95% of the stuff that there is to learn, and I'll mop up the rest of it in a couple years after Bible college, and I will have mastered this book. And there was something inside of me that was fearing that Mr. Peter would tell me, yes, there comes a point late in your Christian life or midway through your Christian life where there's nothing else to learn. There's nowhere else to grow because you have mastered all of it. I wanted to master this book, but I didn't want to master the book. I wanted to master it. Do you understand what I mean by that? I wanted to master it in the sense that I would become proficient in it and proficient in using it and, and loving it and studying it and reading it and delighting in it and growing in it. I wanted to master it in that sense, but I never wanted to master it in the sense where I thought that I had never had anything else to learn from. So Mr. Peeler's answer to me that night was this. He said, he thought about it for just a second, and then he said, when you're reading through the Gospel of John, now some of you were wondering, how is this all tied to John, right? And I understand this is a, a long walk for what's going to prove to be a very short drink of water, but you want to pay attention now because the drink of water is coming. Here was the answer to the, my question. He said, when you're reading through the Gospel of John, he said, it's not until you get to the end of the book of John that you read why John wrote the book. It's at the end that John tells you, these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. So you get to the end of the Gospel of John, and then you find out that new piece of information, and you can go back to the beginning of the Gospel of John and start all over again and read through it now with that new insight. And he said, so it is with all of Scripture. You get to the end of teaching and preaching and working and reading your way through it, memorizing it, and then you pick up all of this new information along the way. Then you can start over at the beginning with those new insights, and it's all fresh to you. That was the life lesson from John 20, verses 30 and 31. And to this day, I cannot even read these verses without thinking of that from Mr. Peter. And I was delighted that he told me that. So, there we are. There's a short drink of water after a very long walk. Now we're in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. This is John's purpose statement. Why did he write this? Why has he written this book? And, and these verses deserve more than just a, a parenthetical reference sort of tacked on at the end of the sermon. 
These verses really deserve a sermon unto themselves so that we may think about why it is that John gave us this book and what he intends for this book and all of our study in it to, to give to us. Now, just in case you're thinking to yourself, does this mean that Jim is going to start over at the beginning of the Gospel of John after he gets through the Gospel of John? That's not where I was going with that. When we get through the Gospel of John, we're done. We're moving on to the next book. All right, 20 and 21, we're going to notice three things, or 30 and 31, we're going to notice three things here. First, the foundation for our belief. Second, the content of our belief. And then third, the result of belief. The foundation of it, the content of it, and then the result. Let's read verses 30 and 31 together. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The foundation of our belief is those things which are written down. The content of our belief is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And the result of our belief is that we might have life in his name. Those are the three things. So let's look, first of all, at the foundation of our belief, why these things are written down. This, these verses, John's, John's sort of parenthetical reference here, his purpose statement, flows quite naturally out of the resurrection appearance that we have just observed with Thomas present now. As remember, when Thomas was absent for the first one, the disciples said, we have seen the Lord. And Thomas said, unless I see in his, his hands the marks where the nails were and put my hand into his side where the spear went in, I will not believe. And then when Jesus appeared to the disciples eight days later with Thomas there that time, Thomas saw it, and without touching Jesus, without handling him, without putting his fingers into the wound, uh, the, the scar on his side, Thomas believed, and Thomas said, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus said, it is because you have seen me that you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So what have we seen in Thomas? What we have seen in Thomas is that once presented with the truth, Thomas moved from the world of unbelief to belief regarding the risen Christ. He went from being an unbeliever to believer. Now, not unbeliever in the sense that he wasn't saved, he didn't trust in Jesus, he didn't love Jesus, but an unbeliever of the reports of the resurrection. He moved from unbelief to belief. It is John's desire that as we read through the Gospel of John, that we would, we would make that same transition. That we would go from being darkness-loving, hard-hearted unbelievers to being light-loving, soft-hearted believers. That is the transformation that John desires as a result of all that he has written down. Now, Thomas's belief was the result of what he had seen. And Jesus said that in verse 29. Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they who do not see and yet who believe. Now, guess who that last verse describes? Blessed are those who have not seen but have believed. It describes everybody in this room. And everybody who has lived for the last 2,000 years, who has never seen Jesus Christ and looked at the wounds and looked at the resurrected body and believed because of that evidence, this describes all of us. We are those who, without the sight that Thomas had, without the evidence that was presented to Thomas, we have yet believed. So we have a faith that, go, that is a faith without seeing all of the evidences that Thomas saw. Now let me ask you a question. What is a higher faith? What is a better faith? Is it the faith that finally bows the knee in the face of overwhelming evidence when there is no other option? Is that faith greater? Or is the faith that takes the testimony of God's word and reads it and says, I believe God because it is written, even though I do not see it, and bows the knee to the testimony of Scripture. Which is the greater faith? The faith that believes in, over, in the face of overwhelming testimony or the faith that takes God at his word? The greater faith, the better faith, the more blessed faith is the faith that takes God at his word. We are those who have believed upon Christ, not because we have seen his resurrected body, not because we witnessed the crucifixion, and not because we have ever uh, seen him or had a vision or heard words directly from his mouth in our presence, 
But we are those who have believed upon Christ because we have believed the testimony of Scripture. We have actually read the words of men who did see him and did believe and wrote those things down for us so that we too might believe. And so we are those who have taken God at his word. We believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, that he died on a cross, and that he rose again three days later, and that he will grant us eternal life. We believe that on the testimony of Scripture in God's word, not because we ever see Christ. And so our faith, in that sense, is a greater faith. It is a more substantial faith. There is only one of all of the 15, minimum 15 people who have seen Jesus up to this point in John's Gospel. There's only one of them who believed without evidence. There's only one of them who believed without seeing Jesus. Do you remember who it was? It was John himself. Remember inside the tomb? John saw the grave closed. And then John reports it was at that moment that he, the disciple whom Jesus loved, it was then that he believed. Peter saw the risen Jesus. All the rest of the disciples saw him and he had to eat fish in their presence. All the rest of the disciples, Thomas had to see him before he believed. Even Mary saw him. Nobody believed that we know of. None of the disciples believed. Nobody who has seen him alive to this point believed without the evidence of seeing him. We are called to believe upon their testimony. And we are called to take God at his word, his bare word that these things are true. And we are called to believe those things. Now, when John says in verse 30, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. There's some question as to what John means by the other signs. What other signs is he talking about? There's really only two options. By other signs, he either means other miracles like the healing of the nobleman's son and the healing of the man crippled, the man born blind, the resurrection of Lazarus, which John has recorded earlier in this book. Other miracles that Jesus did, which Jesus also did that are not recorded in John. Or some believe that John is talking here about other resurrection appearances, other appearances to his disciples and signs in their presence, miracles done in the presence of the disciples to convince them. Um, so is John here describing the miracles themselves or is he strictly speaking about the resurrection appearances? Now, if this statement came at the end of chapter 11, after the resurrection of Lazarus, which is the seventh and final miracle that John records, if this statement appeared there, then I might be tempted to think that what John has in mind is just the miracles. The turning of the water into wine, the multiplying bread and fish, the walking on water, etc. Those miracles. But since this statement occurs in the middle of all of his resurrection appearances, John takes a break from the one resurrection appearance. He's going to pick it up in chapter 21 with yet another resurrection appearance that takes up all of chapter 21. Since John puts this statement right in the middle of all the resurrection appearances, I don't think it's limited to just the miracles that he recorded earlier in the gospel. I think that John intends for us to, to understand that this would describe not only the signs that he did, but also the resurrection appearances. In other words, John is saying there are other resurrection appearances which I have not recorded, and there are other miracles that he did that I have not recorded. And then look what John is saying. He is admitting to us that he is being very selective. There were other things that Jesus did which I have not told you about. And, and almost, he might be implying that, speaking of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that other gospel writers wrote about, but that I haven't covered. He might be describing that. Or he might just simply be saying, look, as I look across the vastness of Jesus' life, in all of his miracles that I saw, and all of the sayings that I heard, and all of the discourses and teaching sessions that I sat in on, I, John says, have selected those which would be most useful in moving you from unbelief to belief. Why did John choose the seven miracles that he did? Why did he choose the seven discourses that he did? Why does John choose these resurrection appearances and not any of the other ones? John is saying, I have selected these so that I might move you from unbelief to belief. It is almost as if he, he is a carpenter or a, a, he has this toolbox in front of him and he 
all of all the tools that he could use, uh, choose, he chose the tools that he thought would be most effective to jar us out of unbelief and into belief. That's what he wants to do. And so everything that he has chosen to record, and it's not a comprehensive account, but everything that he has chosen to record is geared at this, making us believe it. The whole book is one long argument intended to move us from unbelief to belief. That's the purpose. It's not simply to inform us. It's not simply to give us another book of the Bible to read. It is to move us from unbelief to belief. We are to read each one of these signs, each one of these discourses, and understand that they tell us something about Jesus that we are to believe. Just think for a second of the seven signs that John recorded. Jesus turned water into wine. What does that tell us about Jesus? That he is the creator of all things. He can create things out of nothing. He can create things out of something. He is the one who is the master of all of creation. Turning water into wine tells us that about Jesus. The healing of the nobleman's son tells us that he is a healer, that he is sovereign over disease. He did it from a distance, that he is omnipresent, that he can command anything and make it happen. It tells us that about Jesus. What about the the healing of the man crippled on the Sabbath in John chapter 5? That is recorded so that we might understand that he is working just as the Father is working and he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And the the illustration or the, the lesson that Jesus drew from that was that he and the Father are one and he can work just as the Father is working. What about multiplying bread and fish? What does that tell us about Jesus? That he's the bread of life. That's, that's the whole part of the whole discourse that follows that. And he walked on water out over the disciple, to the disciples on the sea in John chapter 6. What does that tell us about Jesus? It tells us that he is the Lord of creation and he controls the elements, whether it's water or wind or sky or whatever it is. He controls that. How about the healing of the man born blind in chapter 9? What does that tell us? That he is the light of the world. That's what Jesus said in chapter 8 and in chapter 9. And then what about the resurrection of Lazarus? What is the point of that miracle? I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. That's the point. Each one of those miracles can tells us something else about Jesus. That he is the Lord of creation. That he is the healer. That he is the Lord of the Sabbath. That he is the bread of life. That he is the Lord of creation. That he is the light of the world. And that he is the, uh, the resurrection and the life. These are the things that we must believe about him. So the entire book, all of the miracles, everything that he has described, all of it is an argument after argument from every conceivable angle to destroy unbelief and usher us into belief so that in believing we might have life in his name. Now, there is a difference between saving belief and and non-saving belief, and we've covered this in John. When John says, these things are written so that you may believe, what he has in mind is the true belief, the saving belief, the regenerating belief that he has described in in this book. John has talked about other belief. He has talked about unbelieving believers or believing unbelievers, however you want to describe it throughout this gospel, because he has contrasted true belief with false belief. And we've gotten some illustrations of what false belief looks like. In John chapter 2, we saw that there are those who followed after him because of the signs. They saw the signs. They enjoyed the signs. Those were curiosities to the people. And so they followed him for that reason and believed on him for that reason. But John chapter 2 says Jesus didn't commit himself to them because he knew what was in man. He knew that their belief, quote-unquote, was not a saving belief. Otherwise, he would have committed himself to them. It was not a saving belief, but instead it was a a shallow belief, just mere intellectual consent, striving after the the miracles and the signs because they thought these things were curiosities and they wanted to see more. Then we saw in John chapter 6 that there is a belief even that is willing to make him king, but not willing to bow the knee itself, right? In John chapter 6, after he fed them in the wilderness, they tried to make him king, and then Jesus said, but those are people who did not believe. These were people who were following him and wanting him to do more signs, asking him for food, following him through the wilderness on the way to Jerusalem. They were even willing to make him king, but they were not willing to bow the knee themselves to him. 
And so when he gave them the hard truths and exposed their unbelief, they walked away. Those were supposed believers. There is a type of belief that pursues Christ in that way. In John chapter 8, there's a type of belief where people are called believers. But when Jesus confronts them with their bondage to sin and their blindness to the truth, those very same people tried to kill him. They were the Pharisees. And then there's the type of belief that's like Judas. The type of belief that attaches itself outwardly to Jesus Christ. Looks as if it was receiving life from him. Looks as if it's one that belongs to him, but in the end is cut off. There is a non-saving, unsaving, irredeeming unbelief, or belief, if you will. It's a belief that is shallow. It is a belief that rejects the demands of Christ, but it is a belief that outwardly attaches itself to him so long as benefits can be received from him. That is a damning belief. When John says he wants us to believe, he is talking about the type of belief that says, whether I see signs or not, whether I see evidence or not, I must have Christ and I will take him as my own unto myself. I will turn from my sin. I will believe upon him and I will trust him and him alone entirely for my salvation because he is worthy of it. That's the type of belief that John is describing. What is the foundation of our belief? It is that which is written in Scripture. And what John says here of his gospel can be stated and applied to all of Scripture. All of Scripture is written so that we might believe. And John, in keeping with that, writes his gospel for that purpose. Everything written in Genesis is written so that we might believe. All the way through to Malachi so that we might believe. That those who trust God and believe God are credited with righteousness. And they are saved by God and delivered by God and their sins are not accounted or imputed to them. That is what we are to believe and that is what we are to trust in. That is why all of Scripture is written. And specifically, that is why the Gospel of John was written. So that's the foundation of our belief. Now, what is the content of our belief? What is it that John tells us that we are to believe? Verse 31. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Two things there. That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, notice that John just doesn't stop by saying that you may believe, as if belief is the end in itself. It's not. There is a specific content to Christian belief. There are certain things that Christian must believe that are true. These certain things about Jesus save us, and there are certain things about him that we must believe. So, John is describing here specifically the content of Christian belief. Two things that he is the Christ, and that he is the Son of God. Christian belief has a certain object in view and a certain content to it. We believe certain things, certain doctrines. Now contrast that with the postmodern idea of belief that you hear floated about in our own circles today. You'll hear people say things like this. It really doesn't matter what you believe, just so long as you believe. Right. The, the content of your belief is really irrelevant. What is important is that you believe it and that you believe it sincerely. That, that whatever you need to believe to make yourself feel whole, to feel like you are in contact with the universe, and to be centered, that's what you must believe. What do I believe? doesn't matter what you believe. You can believe in unicorns or fairies or honest politicians or anything you want that makes, so long as it makes you feel whole, so long as it makes you feel good about yourself and at one with the universe. What is important is not what you believe, but that you believe. There is nothing more counter to Scripture than that diabolical and demonic lie from hell. Christian belief is certain doctrine. It is not just important that you believe. It is important what you believe. Because if you believe error, no matter how sincerely you believe it, you're damned. That's the truth of Scripture. If you believe error and you believe it sincerely, you're just a sincere believer in the error. That's all it is. Because it is not faith itself that saves us. It is the one in whom we have placed our faith that saves us because faith and belief is only as good as the object in which it is placed. 
right? It's likely leaving, again, in unicorns, fairies, or honest politicians. That type of faith, no matter how sincerely held, no matter how strong that belief might be, it cannot save and it cannot do anything to, to, to benefit you because it is in the wrong object. And so there is certain content to Christian belief. We must believe and we must place our faith in certain things. Now, there are two things in this content that, that John gives to us, and these two things could be viewed as kind of headings over which we might put a lot of other doctrinal things. There, there are things that would fall under these two headings, but here they are. That Jesus is the Christ and that he is the Son of God. Now, in our Christian way of thinking, these two things go together. We can hardly think of Jesus as the Son of God without also confessing that he is the Christ. And we can hardly think of him as being the Christ without also confessing and thinking of him as the Son of God. In our minds, these two things go together. But in the Jewish way of thinking in John's day, these two things could have been separated and they were miles apart. Because the Jews of John's day never thought of the coming Messiah or the Messiah that they were waiting for in terms of him being divine. They never pictured a Messiah who was God in human flesh. But when the Messiah showed up, guess what? He was God in human flesh. The Jews weren't expecting that. They should have if they were reading carefully their Old Testament. But they didn't expect that. So they thought of these things separately. Now, John is putting them both together because it is not enough. It is necessary, but it is not enough to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that. Mormons believe that. Muslims believe that. A lot of lost people believe that Jesus is the Messiah. You must also, at the same time that you believe that he is the Christ, the Messiah, you must also believe that he is the divine son, that he is the son of God. So these two things do and must go together in our belief. So let's take each of them separately. The belief that Jesus is the Messiah is the belief that he is the one spoken of in the Old Testament. So the, the idea of Messiah or Christ, that Jesus is the Christ. Christ is just the word that means anointed one. It was used to describe the Messiah. So that idea that he is the Christ or the Messiah was, was loaded with Old Testament significance. Meaning he was the one who was going to come and crush the serpent's head. And the serpent would bruise his heel. He was the one who was the seed of the woman. He's the one who would fulfill the Davidic covenant, fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. He was the one who was that all, of whom Moses and all of the prophets wrote that everybody was looking for. He was the one who would come back and establish the kingdom and set up the kingdom and rule over it and redeem Israel. He was the one who would come and do all of that work. He would perfectly obey Yahweh. He would be the perfect servant of God. He would be the perfect manifestation of what God wanted in obedience to him. That was what the Jews were expecting. And in the New Testament, when we find out that this one who is the Christ, the New Testament significance of it is that he has died for us as the Messiah. He, he, he fulfilled the suffering servant passage of Isaiah 53. He died in our stead. By his stripes we are healed. By his wounds we are healed. That these things were done for us. That he died on a cross and that he rose again the third day. That's the messianic office. Now that describes what he did in terms of of who he, what he accomplished. That he is the Christ. He is the one who fulfills the Old Testament. He is the one who has given himself for his bride, the church. He is the one who has provided and perfectly saves all those for whom it was given. This is his work. But there's a second thing that we must believe. Because believing that him is the Messiah is necessary, but it's not sufficient. It must be there, but that alone is not sufficient. Because as I said, Mormons, Muslims, and a whole bunch of lost people believe Jesus was the Messiah. We must also believe that he is the Son of God. This addresses who he is, that he is not just a mere man. He's not just another man who points us to God or who has who has modeled what God is like or who can describe God to us or another man who can sort of put us in a little bit of a better relationship with God. We must, because this is Christian confession, we must believe that he is the divine son because Jesus didn't claim to just be another man. He didn't make that claim. He claimed to be the I am. He had no problem taking divine titles to himself. And saying, unless you believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. Before Abraham was born, I am. 
He called himself the Good Shepherd, an Old Testament title. Living Water, an Old Testament title for God, for the Messiah. These are the things that God has provided. These are the things that God is. And so Jesus took divine titles to himself and did it without any apology whatsoever, claiming to be the one who is revealed as Yahweh in the Old Testament. That was his claim. And then he took certain divine prerogatives to himself. He claimed to be the one who is the source and the substance of all life, who gives life to all men. He claimed to be the one who would judge all men at the end of time. He claimed to be the one who worked with the Father when the Father was working, to be one with the Father. These prerogatives that he had of forgiving sin and of judging all men, these are divine prerogatives. These are divine works and offices. And he took them to himself. And then he did all of the miracles that he did to prove that his claims were true, that he was God in human flesh. And then he died on a cross and he rose again, giving evidence that, guess what? His claims are true. So what must we believe about Jesus? That he is the Messiah, the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament hope, expectation and anticipation. There is nothing else to come. And that not just that he is the Messiah, but that he, as pertaining to his nature, is the divine son. Now look how closely these two things parallel with Thomas' statement in verse 28. When Thomas saw Jesus, he said, my Lord and my God. The word Lord is a word that David used in the Old Testament to describe his son, the Messiah. David used that term. So what was Thomas saying when he called Jesus Lord? It is a confession of deity, but guess what? It is also a confession that he is admitting that this man standing before him is the Messiah. And then what did Thomas follow that up with? My God. Do you see the parallel there? Thomas said, he is my Lord, my Messiah, the term used for the Messiah in the Old Testament, and he is my God. John says, Thomas confessed him as Lord, as Christ. You must confess him as Lord in Christ. You must believe that he is. And Thomas confessed that he is God. You must also believe that he is God. What Thomas has confessed, this is why this book was written. So that you might make the same confession. So that you and I might bow the knee and say, he is my Lord and he is my God. That's the point of the Gospel of John. Bow the knee and confess that he is Lord, Christ, Messiah. And that he is God in human flesh. That's the reason why the book was written. And we must trust him. Trust him as such. That's the content of our belief. Those are the things that we believe. Now, third, look at the results of this, that you may have life in his name. Verse 31. We believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In this belief, which saves, we have life in his name. And in his name is just a way of, of sort of encapsulating and summing up all of his person and his work. When we speak about the name of God, we're not just describing a, a series of letters which spell out a name like Yahweh or Elohim or Something like that. We're talking about that title which we give to him, which sums up his person and his work and all that God is and all that God has done. And so when we have life in his name, we are saying that because of what Christ has done and by virtue of who he is that has done this work, you and I can have life in that name. And notice that this is an exclusive claim. This, this life cannot come through any other name. John is revealing to us not one of many ways, but one way. And this is the exclusive claim of the New Testament, that there is life in nobody else. And that if you are trusting and believing in the lies of Islam, you will perish. And if you are trusting and believing in the lies of Mormonism, you will perish. If you get it wrong who God is, and you get it wrong what God has done, you will die in your sins. If you do not believe that he is the I am and the Christ, you will perish everlastingly. And so there is deliverance, but notice how narrow and exclusive the deliverance is. Now, when we as Christians talk about the exclusivity of Christ, you cannot be saved if believing in another Jesus or believing lies. When we describe the exclusivity of the Christian faith and faith in Christ, we don't do so because we delight that there's only one way. And we don't do so because we want to exclude a bunch of people. 
And we don't do so because we think that our club is better than the other clubs. But really, all clubs are equal. And it's not just that we want more people in our club that are in the other clubs. This isn't an elementary schoolyard game of join my club and not their club because our club is better. It has the cooler people in our club. That's not our claim. We talk about the exclusivity of the Christian faith. We are making the claim that there is only one way, not because God is begrudging with his grace and not because God is begrudging in his provision. We are saying that there is only one way because there is only one person who has satisfied the wrath of God. There is only one person who has done this work of paying the price for our sin, dying on a cross and rising again to secure a justification. And since only one person has done that work, there is only one means of salvation. Because trust in any other thing is a trust in something that cannot save you. But there is only one thing that can save you. And there is abundant and immense and infinite grace in that one thing, the atonement of Jesus Christ, and in that one person, Christ our Lord. It is infinite grace. It is infinitely able to save to the uttermost all who come to him. God is not begrudging in his grace, but there is only one way because there is only one vehicle by which that grace has been shown to mankind. And any and all can come to him if they will repent and if they will believe that he is the Christ and that he is the divine son and that he has paid a price on the cross, died in the stead of sinners and rose again for their justification. Believe that and you have eternal life. There's a lot at stake, isn't there? This is eternal life we're talking about. We're not talking about whether you have a better life in this world. We're not talking about getting a promotion at work. We're not talking about feeling fulfilled or having a sense of meaning. Look, you want a sense of meaning and purpose? Go watch Oprah. Listen to Deepak Chopra. Read Chicken Soup for the Soul. Oprah, Chopra, and Chicken Soup. You can get more purpose and meaning from those things. You want a more fulfilled life? Try something new off of the menu next time. Try a different restaurant. Go buy a self-improvement product from late night television and go through that. Hire yourself a life coach. There are a hundred ways that you can meet those needs. But the Christian gospel does not address those needs directly because that is not our most pressing need. Our most pressing need is forgiveness. So you want fulfillment and meaning in life? You want to feel better about yourself? You want to be centered and be at one with people around you and the environment and all of that other silly, soapy nonsense? Then listen to Oprah. Pick up Chopra. Go read Chicken Soup for the Soul. All of those things can be satisfy that can satisfy that need. But if your problem is that you have a guilty conscience and that you have sinned against the Holy God and you have heaped up a helping of wrath which will be poured out on you on the final day and you know that you are guilty because you have violated all of His commandments, if your problem is that you know that God is holy and you are not, then there is one solution and one solution only to that problem. And that is Jesus Christ. John doesn't care whether we have a better life, whether we live our best life now, whether things go well with us here, whether we have fulfillment and purpose and meaning and life goes well. John is not concerned about any of that, that we may have life and have it in his name. And it should not surprise us that John would return to this theme. I want you to listen to this series of promises from the life of Jesus, uh, from what John has already written. John in chapter 1 told us that in him was the life, and the life was the light of men. In John chapter 3, verse 16, the most famous verse probably in all of this book, John said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. This is the theme of John's book, belief and life and living, eternal life. John chapter 4, Jesus said, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of living water springing up to eternal life. 
In John chapter 5, verse 24, here's his promise. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. John 6.35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. John 6.58, this is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats of this bread will live forever. John 7, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. John 10, verse 7, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. John 10:27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them. And they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. John 11:25 and 26. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And then Jesus asked Mary this, do you believe this? That's the question, isn't it? Do you believe this? Not just give intellectual assent to it. But do you believe this? That in knowing that he is the Christ, and that he is the divine son, and that he has done this work on my behalf, that if I believe in him, I have eternal life. We're not talking about meaning and purpose. We're talking about living eternally in the blessing of God or dying eternally in eternal conscious torment and suffering. There's a lot hinging on this book. Do you believe this? If you do, Christian, you have eternal life. And here is a promise. It'll never be taken away from you. You'll never be snatched out of his hand. You will live forever. Your sins are forgiven. Your conscience is cleansed. You are not guilty. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the promise. No condemnation. Did you sin yesterday? No condemnation. Did you sin this morning? No condemnation. Eternal life. If you do not believe this, I ask you why not? Why would you spurn such a gracious offer? There's salvation in no other name. For none has been given under heaven whereby we must be saved. If you do not believe this, you are under the wrath of God. Because you have not believed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so you abide under his wrath. And so, as an ambassador of Christ, I would beg you, I would command you on behalf of God, be reconciled today through the death of His Son. Turn from your sin and believe this. This is a gracious offer. We have eternal life. Let's pray. Our Father, you are so gracious and kind to save a people for yourself, to reveal it in the pages of Scripture, to pay the price for our sin fully and completely, so that we might fear no condemnation, but might cleave to this promise that Jesus Christ, because of who He is, because of what he has done, has saved the people for himself and that we are among those. Thank you for giving us this grace, this repentance, this faith. Thank you for saving us for your own eternal glory. We pray for any who are here, who are hearing this, that do not know Christ as Savior and Lord, that they may see the gracious offer that you give to them and that you may give them the grace to reach out and apprehend that for themselves, to take it and receive the gift of eternal life so that you might be glorified in the salvation of sinners and that the Son may receive the full reward for all that he has suffered, gathering together all those whom you have given to him even before time began. We love you and we thank you for such a gracious Savior and such a wonderful salvation. All purchased for us in the name of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.